My name is Jeff Allen. I'm a husband, a father, a musician, and a videographer. And I host and produce several podcasts. I also have anxiety and depression issues. And because of that, I've become what I describe as a fierce mental health advocate. I'm here to smash stigmas. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a counselor or a therapist, but I am a friend of many. And I'm outspoken about mental health. Very, very outspoken. So here we are, Simple Mental Health Season 2. Welcome to Simple Mental Health. This is the last episode of the season already. And uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. And if you haven't already, join our Facebook group. It's on Facebook, search for groups, Simple Mental Health. It's a private group, so you'll have to be admitted. Um, But I really think it's a good community that we have, and I think it's valuable. Also, if you don't follow us on Instagram already, do that, please. Instagram, it's simple.mental.health. I'm so excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking about, you guessed it, or maybe you didn't. (laughs) We're going to be talking about how to love people who have mental health issues and how to love them well. So I'm really excited. Um, Hey, also, I don't talk about this much at the end of the podcast. I usually do. But if you are interested in helping support the podcast, there are some t-shirts and things like that available on the website. All the money goes to supporting the podcast. There's also a buy me a coffee feature and that's not actually buying me a coffee. It's just giving us a donation so that we can help uh, keep the website going and things like that. So anyway, um, on with the podcast, on with the, ne- the episode and uh, we'll be back for season three at some point. Not sure when. Thank you for joining us today. Wellbeing Brewing Company is the first non-alcoholic craft brewery in the United States solely designated to producing great-tasting craft beers in a variety of tastes and styles with no alcohol. Their focus on health is highlighted by fully brewing beers that are naturally low in calories, contain zero sugar, high in polyphenols, hydrate versus dehydrate, vegan, non-GMO, and delicious. But check this out. Wellbeing has teamed up with Four Hands Brewing Company to create a non-alcoholic El Dorado dry hopped IPA called Liquid Rain, all in the name of mental health awareness. Ready to try Wellbeing? Well, go to wellbeing.com and get 10% off of your total online order by using coupon code SMH10. That's SMH10. Today, my guest is Kamisha Brewer. As a therapist, thought life coach, speaker, and writer, Kamisha is passionate about helping people prioritize their mental health. And today, Kamisha and I are going to talk about what it is and what it looks like to care for someone with depression, anxiety, or other mental health issues. So Kamisha, welcome to Simple Mental Health. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Well, I'll be honest, Kamisha, this is sort of a selfish topic for me because in my experience, I felt like a burden to my friends and family when I'm having anxiety attacks or what I call anxiety moments. Much, I think it's much shorter than a like an actual attack. It just like, kind of hits me quickly. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. with that said, I was wondering if you find that people who deal with mental health issues often struggle to communicate what they're going through with their family or their partners or their friends, et cetera. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it, you know, is the stigma with mental health. But if you're the person that's dealing with anxiety, if it's panic attacks or, you know, just uncomfortable situations in social settings, like different things like that, sometimes it is hard to communicate that, especially if you're not sure that the people you're trying to communicate with, you're not sure that they understand. Right. Um, or you're not sure what their response is going to be. Are they going to be understanding or will they look at you like you're weird or crazy or whatever? So because of all of those different things and not knowing what the response is going to be and how they're going to treat you on the other side of that conversation, absolutely. It can definitely be a barrier and make it difficult to communicate. Yeah, for sure. Why, why is it important for friends and family to get on board and support their person who struggles with mental health issues? Personally, even as like a therapist and in my experience, when we're working with people, you know, who are dealing with these mental health issues, when they have a good support system and they have people in their corner who love them, who care about them, who want to see them get better and heal, like statistically speaking, they tend to make much more progress through their treatment plans and they're able to reach their goals so much faster when they have people um, and when they have good people, not the kind of people that are like threatening with support, right? Well, I'm going to do this, but you have to do that. Like not that kind of support, uh, yeah. but just genuinely just being there and being present and asking, you know, how, how's your treatment going? What can we do? Um, just, you know, just the education, like how can we be here for you to help you get through this thing? Because we believe in you. Like when you have people in your corner that do that, we see people make so much more progress than the people who have nobody. Yeah. I, you know, that makes me think about growing up. I had anxiety definitely growing up as a kid and, and I don't think we had any like just words to call it. I'm in my thirties now, my mid thirties. And, um, my, you know, parents didn't, no, I mean, I guess they knew they had an anxious kid on their hands, but I don't think they knew that I was like diagnosed with general, you know, later I would be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and there just weren't mm -hmm. words for it and support, you know, we, they just didn't know. And I think they did a good job, none, you know, without, without the <laughs> tools, you know, they kind of made it up as they went along. Um, but I'm so glad that we have people like you, um, who are providing tools and, and hopefully through this podcast, um, there are some tools that people find, um, you know, dealing with someone who is having an anxiety attack or is depressed or even suicidal can be kind of an overwhelming thing. I, even someone who understands anxiety, um, I can still, you know, feel a little overwhelmed if I'm, you know, trying to support one of my friends. And, and so where should someone start when they're, um, when they realize that they, they love someone who has um, some mental health problems and uh, someone who's trying to work on themselves and um, where should somebody start? My recommendation for a good starting place is always through education. Mm. Um, you know, there's so many things that, you know, you could see on TV or on social media about what to do. And I think those are good platforms and good resources that can be informative, but definitely going to like the official source of the resource, like the national websites for, you know, mental illness or for PTSD, for domestic violence, for mm. depression and anxiety, like going to the actual source just to read the articles and read other people's stories, reading through the research, just to see, you know, what all could be happening and how, um, how big of a deal, like it really is just to see, you know, the different types of anxiety and where it comes from, how it starts how it can present in a child or in an adult or 
in your parents. You know, if you're taking care of like elderly parents, like the way anxiety presents in someone who's 70 looks different from someone who's in their mid thirties. So just the education part is always a good start, but I don't think that should be, you know, where it stops because it is different for everyone. So once you get that education and you do your research just to help you be more empathetic and more understanding, then I think you should definitely go to your person. And just ask them like, hey, what is it that you need? Like, how can we be a part of this? How does your anxiety look? How does your depression present itself? What are some things we need to be looking for as a family? Well, that's really great because that brings me to like my next question, because I get asked by my friends a lot of times, how can I help? And I think it's such a caring question, but the truth is I have no idea. You know, for me, as someone who deals with anxiety pretty regularly, what can I tell that friend? Yeah. And I think I think that's going to vary, you know, based on where you're at. Anxiety and depression, you know, are one of those things that it can look different from day to day. And so the how can I help question, I think the answer to that question would just be based on what the person needs that day and what they need that moment. So sometimes the way you can help is to just be present and to just sit with them. Sometimes the way you can help is through doing something for them. If, if it needs to be cooking dinner or going to get their groceries, picking up their kids from school, if they're you know feeling overwhelmed, I think the help can look different on different days. And it just kind of depends. So this is, again, why I always recommend just constant communication mm. because it can vary and everyone, they may not need the same help. So you know the help you need in the beginning of the year um, or in the spring when, you know, the sun is out and it's warm and people are outside, that help may look different than it does in the middle of December when the days are shorter, it's dark, it's cold, you know, depending on where you live. So I think all of those things can affect someone's mood. So just constantly asking, you know, how can I help? And then being ready to help in different ways as someone is going through the depression, anxiety based on what it is that they need that day. Yeah. Well, do you, do you find in your practice at all, maybe like with your clients, do you ever have any people who come along and say, you know, my spouse or my friends, or they just think I'm sad or they just think I'm, I'm wound too tight and I need to chill out. Do you ever find people like that? And, and what, what do you say to them to, to tell their, you know, their spouse or their friend, this is a real thing, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, yeah. don't discredit this. Yeah. And I think, I think, again, with the education and just how much people know about it or or what their own personal experience has been. For some people, you know, when they hear about depression or anxiety, they're like, oh, they're too sad. I don't, clinically, when I hear too sad, I think that's relative because I don't, I don't think there's a way to measure what's too sad. Like you should only be this sad. Right. Um, yeah. I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think, yeah. I don't think that's fair to say to someone because we can't quite measure someone's sadness or their pain because people respond to life situations in different ways. So I think whatever degree of anxiety or whatever level of depression you have, I think all of it's valid. And so for the caregivers and the the friends and the family members, I think the best approach to that is just to validate the feelings. Like, oh, they're sad. What can I do? How can we be here? Not they're too sad or they're overreacting to this situation. Mm -hmm. Like they shouldn't be having this many panic attacks throughout the day. I don't think it's fair to measure someone else's experience of their own life. Right. And I think, you know, the best way to kind of approach that is to just give people space and to give them permission to be 
who they are, how they are, feel the way that they feel, try to validate and try to support, but still allow them to be, you know, who they are without saying, oh, you should be better by now. You've been in therapy for five years. You should be fixed. Like it doesn't quite work that way. Life doesn't pause in order for you to heal and go through therapy for depression and anxiety. Life continues to happen. And so it can be harder for someone who has chronic depression or chronic anxiety because this is their norm. Like it's not like a thing that just happened. Like they wake up to this, they go to bed with this. I'm very hopeful and optimistic from like a treatment outcome standpoint, but I think we really just need to give people space and permission to be who they are and just validate how they feel. Yeah. And I don't, I think that some people can overcome their depression some people can overcome their anxiety. But for me, I've always said this for my whole life. I've had this. And and so for me, it's, it's not necessarily a problem to be solved. It's a tension to be managed. So like, I'm just going to be managing this maybe the rest of my life. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's okay, but I need my people to understand, <laughs> you know, right. I, and I'm not trying to be a burden. I swear <laughs> that's the last thing I want to be. Sometimes I feel like I am. And, uh, and I get it. Like I get that anything like that can wear on anyone, you know? And that's True. the other thing is, is do you think like, how should people who are dealing with, uh, or excuse me, how should people who are caring for or loving or just in someone's life who, who, uh, is dealing with mental health issues, how should that person be watching out for their own mental health? Because I feel like it could be tempting, especially someone who is an empath to take on some of those feelings of, of their, of their person. Yeah. I think a good way, you know, to just be mindful of your own life as you're caring for someone is through like constant self-evaluation and just asking yourself, you know, um, like I call them heart checks and checking your heart and just asking, okay, am I in too deep? Mm. Am I creating this codependent relationship where my person feels like they can't function if I'm not present? Because if that's the case, it's not helping them or you because you're away from your own life because you're being present for someone else. Um, Asking yourself, like, do I feel like I'm this person's savior? or I'm responsible for them? Do I feel like if I'm not with them 24 seven, that they're actually going to harm themselves or commit suicide? I'm gonna blame myself for the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. I think there's boundaries that need to be created as caregivers because yes, you you wanna be there with somebody, you wanna love them and support them. However, you still have your own life to live. And I don't think it's healthy and a conducive environment because I've also seen the flip side of that for caregivers who were caring for people with mental illness, how they feel like, you know, their life was stolen from them because they spent so many years caring for someone else. And now they're now they're anxious and they're bitter. They're dealing with anger and resentment because they were there for someone else and they were not present in their own life. And sometimes their marriage starts falling through the cracks or their children start acting out or they start neglecting their own health. And so now we have two problems. You have the, you know, the person that was dealing with the mental health illness in the first place. And then now the caregiver has their own set of problems because they were caring for someone else. So I think it's so important to create those boundaries and communicate, Hey, I'm going to be here for you, but these are the hours I'm available (laughs) to be here to support you. I can't be on call for you 24 seven. You know, I'm not your doctor. I'm not your crisis hotline, but we are here for you. However, I do have my own life. So just having that communication, having that conversation and then constantly doing self-evaluations like, okay, do I need to take a break? Do I need self-care from being the caregiver? Cause it is draining. 
And it's a different type of it's a different type of stress when you are caring. So constant communication and self-evaluation for sure. Yeah, that's good. Well, some of our listeners had some questions. So here's a listener question. How do you get your loved one to talk to you about it when they are experiencing anxiety or worry? Um, this person has a, a person who I know gets stressed, but won't let anyone help. Love this question. Or I get this question often. Mm-hmm. And I think therapy brain just kicked in. Okay. So <laughs> I think with this type of question, a lot of it, there's a lot of elements of control of wanting someone to talk about something. Um, and for people that are dealing with anxiety and, you know, the worry, if they're stressed, they may not be in a position to talk. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they don't want you present or they don't want your support. Some people literally don't have the words to articulate or there's so much anxiety that they can't even think through what to say and how to form a sentence and even how to communicate it in a way that makes you understand it. Yeah. Which would create additional stress and anxiety. So for some people, it is better for their anxiety in that moment to not talk about it. Um, So as the supporter, I think um, just to help ease everyone's anxiety and everyone's stress, I think we we try to release the control part of wanting someone to talk when they're not ready to talk. Yeah. You know that, and just be, go ahead. That, that made me think of something that happens to me sometimes. And I've told my wife this, she'll say, and, and she just means this so caringly, but, but she'll say, Hey, how's your anxiety today? Which is so, which will kick off an anxiety attack for me sometimes huh? like that just triggers it. Sometimes I'm like, I wasn't even thinking about it, but now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So I've had to communicate that. That's, you know, one of the, you're talking about communication. So, but yeah, I, I don't have words for it in that moment. And I wasn't even feeling it in that moment. And then all of a sudden it kicked off my, my anxiety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So another of our listeners writes, um, what are the best resources to help those supporting a loved one's mental health better understand our feelings and needs? I feel like one of the worst things about struggling with anxiety and depression is the added emotional labor that accompanies having to constantly explain where I am emotionally and mentally and why. The why is particularly difficult because of, I don't always know. Uh, I wish those supporting loved ones in a mental health situation would take it upon themselves to educate themselves and not always depend on us to do it for them. So what are are the best resources? Um, I think you've kind of covered this a little bit, but I thought maybe you'd have some, another take on it or maybe. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's so many different resources out, which is a great thing. And I don't think there's like a, a best of the best. I think, you know, resources can vary based on what you need or what the family needs or what the caregivers need. So definitely like just examples, like the National Suicide Hotline, their entire website, they have great resources. The Domestic Violence website, they have great resources. Any And even with, you know, depression, anxiety, there's always, you know, for many people, like a substance abuse issue with like chemical dependency, but Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, um, and even like Codependence Anonymous is a great support system for caregivers mm. because um, codependency, it's it's present, even if, you know, people aren't aware or they don't acknowledge it. You know, sometimes if someone's having a panic attack, you feel like you have to be there for them so that they can function. Um, and so it's supportive and it's good, but it's also enabling the person to not, you know, to not be responsible for their own life, which they can do because there may be a time where you're not available to be there for them. So I think through the education, um, I have several 
like resources on my website. It's on KamishaBrewer.com. It's under therapy resources. Mm. But I have all of them listed there for quick links for people to go to just so they can have it. Because sometimes, you know, mid panic attack, if you've never dealt with that or you've never been the caregiver of a person, you need somewhere quick to go to. And if it's 10 o'clock at night, the therapists are not available. Yeah. <laughs> we are in we are in bed, you know, living our own lives with our families. And so those resources are out there and available and the hotlines are open 24 seven, even on holidays, weekends, like it doesn't matter. So I think the education is huge, um, which this person definitely mentioned in the question. So I think the education and the resources are good just because it's not the person who's dealing with the mental illness. It's not their responsibility mm -hmm. to educate the caregivers. And sometimes that's an extra burden. So I think, you know, there's a little bit of responsibility that has to be there if you're going to be a caregiver for someone. Yeah. Well, that's just, yeah. I'm like, I was thinking about that the whole time too. I'm like, I, you know, as someone who struggles with anxiety, I'm not an expert in anxiety just because I struggle with it, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> so yeah. Another of our listeners and like I, this is another thing we've sort of tackled a little bit, but I see this, this person writes, I see a counselor for my own mental health, but my daughter also struggles. How can I help her without adding to my own anxiety? Love this question too. And I think, I think sometimes it's hard to do. I don't have a direct answer for this is how you do it. And it won't contribute to your own anxiety. Like, right. I don't think, you know, I'm involved enough in this scenario to be able to give a specific strategy for how to do this. Mm -hmm. But I do think, you know, through the communication, when it is, you know, a child who's also dealing with something that the parent is dealing with, I think there's a beautiful experience within that shared experience to have a conversation about it and to normalize it and to not quite try to protect each other from the same thing you're both experiencing. Yeah. And so if it is, you know, a day where the anxiety is more, um, more intense than having a conversation about it or working through the coping skills together. I think that's something that could potentially decrease the anxiety for the parent and the child. Um, but I think this requires vulnerability. You know what I'm saying? Because I know for many parents, they want to hold it together, not show that they're anxious because they want to be present for their child. Mm -hmm. And sometimes for kids, they're like, well, I want to be like my parent. <laughs> I wish I wasn't anxious, but I feel like they're anxious too, but they're acting like they're not anxious. And then it's weird. And then that becomes a whole thing. So just being honest, being transparent, being vulnerable, doing things together and normalizing that shared experience, it, it's really beneficial for everyone that's involved. And then if you guys are in treatment, if it's individual sessions or even family sessions, I think there's a lot of new dialogue and strategy that can come out of that conversation. You know, when you get back to the therapist's office and you're like, okay, well, you guys had a tough weekend, let's talk about it. And then you can share how you did those things together yeah. and what happened and how you both felt after doing those things together. So I think the vulnerability part for parents is huge and like a key thing for how to decrease the anxiety. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, for sure. I, I love the idea of, of family, you know, family sessions too. That, that's great. Mm -hmm. Um, so thanks for joining me today. Um, I wanted to, you know, you have a really interesting story that I read in your bio, um, just about how you, you kind of came up out of, um, out of nothing, essentially being orphaned and, and, uh, into becoming an entrepreneur yourself by, you know, by your late twenties. And that's just super cool. So how can people learn 
more about you and what you do and, and just your story. Absolutely. Um, so easiest way is definitely to connect with me on social media, on Instagram. It's at Kamisha Brewer on Facebook. It's um, at Kamisha Brewer. And you'll see my credentials, EDS, LPC for my license. Nobody mm-hmm. needs to know what, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. all the letters that's just for us therapists in the, in the field. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also my website, KamishaBrewer.com. I have a lot of resources on there. There's information about my bio and my story. I do a lot of speaking engagements. Um, I'm actually releasing my first book in the fall. It's called Thought Life Confessions. Yes. And it's inner conversations for successful, anxious women. And I'm really, really excited to share that just to try to normalize some of the experiences of what it's like to be um, a person dealing with anxiety, but also like creating success and how that can look. And in the book, I share a lot of my my story. I share my journey, some of the things that I've dealt with, but I'm also providing strategies for how to deal with the mindset blocks as you're, you know, managing managing your time, like managing how you rush through life and the pursuit of goals and how that creates anxiety. I incorporated some amazing case studies and some resources and strategies in this book to really help people to channel their inner courage and be inspired and laugh, but also mentally level up and just not be satisfied with where you are. Because like you said earlier, it can be managed and Mm -hmm. you can have a really beautiful, healthy, meaningful life, even though you're dealing with anxiety or depression. So that is definitely how you guys can connect with me and how you can learn more about my story and what I do. That's awesome. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I drop all those links in the show notes. So people just go click on them and, uh, yeah, go check out Kamisha and, and follow her so you can be updated on when that book comes out, because that sounds like a killer book. I'm super excited for you, uh, for that. And, uh, hopefully people will grab that because I think it'll be really beneficial to them. Well, Kamisha, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Simple Mental Health. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast so that it can continue to be brought to you for free, please consider stopping by simplementalhealth.me and grabbing a shirt, hat, or mug, or buying me a coffee. Uh, Buying me a coffee actually is donating a few bucks to help us cover expenses here. We have plenty of coffee, don't worry. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tell your friends. This is Simple Mental Health.